Welcome to the Little Things Podcast, where each and every episode will give you an appreciation for the little things in life, shift your perspective on a day-to-day basis, and help you discover the unmatched potential that lies in all of us. On today's episode of the Little Things Podcast, I invite Daniel Calderon Sanchez to discuss his journey from Mexico City to the United States and the brand new lifestyle that came along with it. We then analyze Danny's passion for the brand and talk about what he's been doing to help advance our knowledge on an already undiscovered area of humanity. Enjoy the little things. Like, I don't know, so we'll dive into this, but, like, the way me- human memory works, it's like, you're not actually recalling the event. You're recalling remembering it. You're remembering remembering it. And that's sure. how it goes. Right. I'll tell you more about that <laughs> later. But, um, so, I remember getting home from school one day, because I would walk to school and back, like, across the street and everything, like a little kid, dude. It was, it was, it was awesome. I loved, I loved Mexico. Um, but I remember getting home, and then my mom had a bunch of people, like an open house. And I'm like, what the hell's going on? And she's like, we're selling everything. So you got to keep in mind, at this point, like, I knew I had a dad, mm-hmm. but I was so young that, like, I, it kind of, like, it didn't phase me, like, you know? Sure, and and he, like, he just wasn't really that, you know, much involved in your life. Exactly. For, I mean, well, it was like four years, right? Because he moved yeah. when you were three. Exactly. Yeah. So for those four years, it's kinda, like, almost like I forgot about him. Like, yeah, yeah, I have a dad. Yeah, I talked to him on the phone, but, like. He wasn't present. Mm-hmm. So it was just my mom, and I love my mom. And like, so I get home, and I'm like, Mom, what are you doing? What are all these people doing here? And she's like, oh, we're selling everything. And I'm like, well, why? Why are, why are you selling everything? She was selling the couch, selling the fridge, selling the TV, selling everything. And she's like, well, we, we need money because we're, we're leaving. That's where she broke the news to me, dude. Wow. She just, I, I, I guess she just didn't have the heart to tell me beforehand. I mean, I was a little kid. I mean, right. You just don't explain things like that to a little kid. Did she drop that on you guys? Like, was it you and your siblings all together, or was it just kind of casual when it happened? Well, uh, I only have an older brother. He's seven years older than me, so I think he knew. I think he had, a, mm. he had an idea. Because I remember my mom telling me that he had, like, a rebel phase. Because sure. He hated my dad. He thought he, he abandoned us and everything like that. So my brother had a completely different perspective on this whole story. But so I get there and I remember even going up to the fridge and hugging it, dude. I was like, no. And I started crying. I was like, I don't want to go. I have all my friends here. Like, this is where I belong. Yeah. I don't want to go to the United States. Like, I, I would hear like myths and stories about the United States, how there would be like leprechauns everywhere. <laughs> and shit like that. Like, that was my idea of the United States. Was, was there like, more to that perception of the U.S. or? Yeah, dude, everybody had that perception because it was like, I mean, the United States at this point was like recognized as like the greatest country to live in. Mm -hmm. And it still kind of is, but um, that's changed a little bit. But people would just like come up with stories and they tell you like, no, it's not like this over there. Like it's completely different, like a different planet. Yeah, it was weird, man. (laughs) So I was like, no, I don't want to go because I would always tell my friends, yeah, my dad's over there in the United States. And they're like, oh, it's much different over there. Like you have no idea. So once that once that news broke to you, like once your mom told you everything, how long was it before everything was packed up? You had said goodbye to your family and friends. Dude, not even a month. Wow, it moved quick. Dude. And that's a quick turnaround, right? Yeah, there. yeah. So I was. I remember I was in first grade. I was in first grade and I left in the middle of it. 
and I got here. So we, we arrived in Crawfordsville. And the first thing we did was we lived with uh, one of my dad's friends. Um, and, and it's just a spare bedroom, the four of us. Had your dad. had your dad owned a house or was... No, he was living... Okay, with, so he was living with yeah, him Yeah, he was well. just renting a, a room with one of his friends. Gotcha. And uh, we all crammed in there. And then eventually, like, we were in there for like seven months. And then we eventually got uh, a trailer. And we started renting a trailer. And we, we lived there for... Most of my childhood, which is, it was awesome, dude. Like, I had a great childhood because all my friends were nearby. They were all close by, and we would, like, it was, like, generic, like, childhood. You'd knock on uh, your friend's door and say, hey, can you come out to play? Right. It was awesome, man. I had a great childhood here. And then, um... And that's, of course, where you met Nick? No, no, no. So, wow. I met, I met Nick, um, so Nick is your old roommate. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Those listening. <laughs> but, um... I met Nick in, it wasn't elementary school because he went to a different elementary. So what happened was that in fifth grade, all of our elementaries combined. So it, you, there used in Crawfordsville, there used to be three different elementaries. It was Nicholson, Hose, and um, Nicholson, Hose, and uh, Hoover mm. elementaries. But then when we got to fifth grade, so after our fourth grade year, uh, they ch- they decided to change it up, and it would be like Nicholson was only uh, first and second grade, uh, Hose was uh, third and fourth grade, and then Hoover was all fifth graders, mm. and so that's where we all met. Gotcha. Everybody, everybody. Came Once you guys there. combined, and that's where I started meeting them. Um, but at first, I wasn't, I wasn't like really good friends with them or sure. anything. I was, I was more like, I was a very outgoing kid. I've always been a very outgoing person, and. Um, it's not like I would just pick a group of friends and then just hang out with them solely. Like, I would hang out with everybody. I'd mm-hmm. talk with everybody. Like, I didn't really mind. Like, the whole concept of a best friend to me has always been kind of uh, mysterious. Um, that's very interesting. Yeah. Well, what do you mean by that? So, like, you know how somebody says, oh, that's my best friend. Sure. Like, what does that mean? Like, why why can't you have all the best friends? Like, why can't you respect every person that you're around and you spend time with the same? <laughs> that was my phone. You're good. Uh, I, it, at least in in my opinion and perception of a best friend, it's you know somebody who you're like spending a ton of time with. You know who you uh, maybe not even have a lot in common with. I mean, that's definitely something that I would qualify, or that that would be a characteristic of a qualifying best friend. But mm-hmm. yeah, somebody who you spend a lot of time with, uh, somebody who you have a lot in common with. You just love doing the same activities. You know. Yeah. I mean, I I totally get what you're saying with. Why can't everyone be your best friend? Right. And there's nothing wrong with being friendly with everybody, of course, right? Like, yeah. I mean, that's the best way to live life. But, yeah, I mean, I definitely think there's something about having and denoting a best friend or, like, a group of best friends, if you will. Yeah, I don't know. I just, I, I differ in the fact that, like, I, before Bailey, my current girlfriend mm-hmm. of almost two years, I've never really just dedicated my free time to hanging out with one or two exclusive people mm. i'd always just be like oh i'd want to hang out with them oh he wants to hang out let's hang out with them him and him like and then i almost found it kind of um insulting to the rest of my best friends if i were to pick a best friend i get that you know yeah like, I, I totally understand that yeah so i don't know do you have a best friend uh bailey would be my best friend now. okay sure but that's different because like she's my partner you totally know? yeah I don't know. But so back to 
Yeah, where were we? You guys moved to Crawfordsville. You oh, were yeah. living in your neighbor's yeah, so met, house or whatever. I met them in fifth grade, and then we all went to Tuttle Middle School from sixth grade through eighth grade. And that's where I started really, like, hanging out with them. Dude, middle school was weird. So I've always loved school. I've always thought it was, like, really cool to, like, get to see all your friends and then, like, get to listen to a teacher and, like, learn. Because, mm-hmm. like, learning, I don't know, I've always, ex- I've always thought to myself that like learning is like the purpose of life like you wake up every day and you you take in information through your eyes your nose your ears you taste things you're you're all, you're continuously acquiring stimulus and that's learning even if you don't categorize it as actual learning but it, it you're learning ab- about the world around you every second of every day right you're, you're aware right and that's a form of learning so I've always loved learning, learning, even if it has to do with a book and a worksheet. I didn't. I never minded. So speaking of learning, how how did you um, acquire this, you know, this um, this new language? Like when you moved from New okay, Mexico, yeah. I did kind of skip over that. So I didn't speak a, a lick of English when I got <laughs> here, man. I was I was six six years old and ten months when I first got here, and I remember. Soon after I got here, it was Christmas and everything. But so the way I learned was, um, I would watch SpongeBob, SpongeBob SquarePants. <laughs> that was my favorite show. That and Dragon Ball Z were like my only two shows that I would ever watch in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And we were both on Channel Five, which is why Five is my favorite number. Uh. Um, so I would I'd watch these shows, and I, I was like a big fan, and I knew the episodes, I recognized the episodes, but they were in, obviously they were in Spanish. And so when I got here, I was like, man, I, I want to watch TV. Like, I was a kid, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and um, I'd put on TV, and I found SpongeBob SquarePants, but it was in English now. And I was like, well, shit, I mean, I don't know how to switch it to <laughs> Spanish. So what I did was I just started watching it, and I would recognize the episode, and I would recognize the premise of the episode and what Patrick was doing, mm-hmm. what Sandy was doing. Right. And I'd be like, oh. And so... Through my recognition of the episode, I would start to pick up on words. Just like, word here, word there, word there. It's incredible. And dude, kids learn quickly, man. Like, little kids at that age, like, they say that they, that is the prime age to learn a new language. Right. When, when I mean, when you're at the age where your brain is so malleable, right? right. Like, you just, I mean, it, it obviously gets harder to learn uh, new things in a different language when you're so old, but, yeah. or, or as you get older, but. Yeah, like you're saying, like when you're so young, I mean, man, like especially just being submerged into that culture, right? Like even if you do it when you're 30, 40, you you pick it up, right? Right. Because you're just around it. But when you're born into it, right, or you're still super young, Mm -hmm. like in your case, I mean, it's just amazing how fast it comes on. Yeah, and I was, as you say, I was really thrown in there because I would have to take the bus. So the bus, like taking a bus to school was like a, a thing that I... I only saw on TV. And that was, I remember that was like a crazy experience. Wow. Like, I have to sit here with these five people and just <laughs> wait for this yellow bus to yeah. pick us up. That was weird, man. It was weird. And then, yeah, like all, like, there's not many, not many Hispanics in, in Crawfordville. Mm-hmm. Um, there's more now, but uh, there wasn't that many. So I was just around all these people, and I would, I'm a social person, so I would try to communicate with these people, but I couldn't, so I did my best, and then I would learn a little bit every day. <laughs> oh, you know what's my favorite, dude? Your um, the bathroom story. Oh, dude, <laughs> yeah, that that's kind of embarrassing now. <laughs> so, um, 
So the bathroom story was, I was, so I got here and I started second grade. Remember I told you I, I left in the middle of first grade? Right. I never even finished it. So just hop straight into second grade? Just Did you test in or you just? No, I was just, I was that age. They didn't even, okay, I don't gotcha. think they even bothered testing me. Sure. Um, uh, but in, in my second grade class, it was Mrs. Minch's class. And she was a really, really kind lady. But in that class, it was only me and Fernando were the only Hispanics. <laughs> and Fernando was born here. So he spoke Spanish at home, but he had been around English his whole life. So he was fluent in both. And so I would ask him to like translate for me all the time. I'd be like, hey, tell her this. Hey, tell her that. Tell him this. Tell him that. And then eventually I just got sick and tired of it, dude. I was like, dude. I'm sick of having to ask this guy. I don't need a translator. Yeah, I was like, you know what? <laughs> Screw it. And one of the things that really bothered me was about the bathroom. Like, that's a very private thing. I want to be able to ask myself. Like, having that, it was uncomfortable for you to have to ask somebody else to ask for you to use the restroom. Yeah, exactly. Totally, yeah. I mean, that's understandable. Right. So what I decided to do was at that point, I was like, you know what? It doesn't seem that hard. What people do is they raise their hand. They get the teacher's attention, and then they say a phrase. A phrase that sounds something like, the restroom. <laughs> yeah. Something like that. So I would just try to, I didn't even know the words. I didn't even know what words were being said. I just tried to imitate the sound. So you raised your hand and threw together a couple syllables. Yeah. And finished it off with restroom. Yeah. And what happened after that? She let you go? She's like, I was just like, restroom. (laughs) (laughs) And she's like, yeah, sure. Go ahead, Danny. Mm. (laughs) I don't know. I guess she got it. Yeah. But yeah, dude, within, within three months, I was able to have a full conversation with somebody. That's incredible. Yeah. It was, it was quick. It was quick. Cause I was, I was just always around it. It was easy. Right. Um, so yeah, then middle school happened, and middle school was like a whole different change, dude. I was I looked forward to like, I looked forward to uh, the class periods and having to go to your locker and then go to the next class. Mm. I thought that was so fascinating, dude. I was like, yes, like it's not just in one classroom all day, like mm-hmm. like it's periods and that's cool. Change of scenery. Did you ever watch uh, Ned's Classified School Survival Guide? Of course, dude. That <laughs> show had me wanting to have like like different class periods. It was awesome. How how young were you when you started watching that? Oh gosh, probably uh probably like late elementary school, like fifth grade, fourth and fifth grade, was when I watched that. Okay. Oh, so you had already been here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, gotcha. I was here. Um, remember I got here in second grade. Right. 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 So, um, elementary happens, and all I did in elementary school, dude, was I played soccer for the school. And I played RuneScape. Did you ever hear about RuneScape? The name uh, sounds familiar. I'm not, I don't. It's an online, uh, uh, like free roam game on the computer, and you mm. just, you have a character and you have different skills that you could get better at, or you have, you just do whatever you want. It's sure. not like a set campaign or it's anything. like like a Second Life type right, game. Right, exactly. Yeah. Dude, I was so addicted to that game, dude. So addicted. So that's all I did in middle school. I never even hung out with that many people, really. Um, and then high school came, dude. And high school was a big change. Um, so you know, you hear all, all like a bunch of things about high school, and like high school is like super different. Um, so that really changed me. And uh, what about it? What was different for you? Uh, just my friend group really changed. Like massive changes within your friend group, or you had different just, like you were going in between friend groups. Yeah. Just your uh, typical high school. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I. 
I, I saw the clicks and I noticed the clicks around school when I got to high school, but I never really felt urged or pressured to only be involved in one. Mm-hmm. Like, I thought that whole idea was stupid. I always wanted to combine people. So this idea of, like, not really limiting yourself to a specific group of people started that long ago. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I've always been like that. I always thought it was dumb that people would just hang out with the same people. Like, you don't know. You might get along with that guy. And there was a lot of bullying going on. I I was never bullied myself. And I'd like to think that I never bullied anybody. But um, a lot of people just thought highly of themselves and a lot of people thought that it wasn't worth their time to even associate with certain people and i was never like that i'd like to say that i was i was very open-minded about people that's just i mean that's just an ego thing for sure like growing up you know thinking you're too good yeah for somebody else that's just that's just pure high school you know, I'm, I'm too good for that person. So high school, um, the biggest change in high school was my sophomore year. At the end of my sophomore year. Some are going into junior year, I think. Um, or maybe it was sophomore year. It was in 2012. I think that was sophomore year. Or end of freshman year. I don't know, but uh, Barack Obama came out with an executive order called Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. So basically, uh, children that did not choose to come to this country and were brought here by their parents illegally. Mm-hmm. So my case. Um, you were brought here Ill- illegally? Yeah. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah, man. Uh, they were granted this permit by Barack Obama uh, that basically allowed them to work here under their own name, get a license, a driver's license. Um, uh, what else? <coughs> Uh, basically, that's it. Oh, and so you, you became a citizen through that law? It's not even a citizen, dude. It's just a permit. You're, so it goes that permit, and then it, and you would be a uh, uh, it's called a temporary resident. And then, Interesting. And then you'd be a permanent resident, and then you'd be a citizen. So Are you now like a citizen a through that process? No. You're still not a citizen? No, I just have that permit. And how about your parents? No, they don't. They don't even have that permit because they weren't children. <laughs> okay, so they're technically still illegal. Correct. Wow, that's interesting. And have you or them have, have like your has has your family decided to go through or even think about going through that um, process of obtaining citizenship? So it's not like a process that anybody can just sign up for. Um, How does it work? So you either so there's two major ways of doing it. There's a lot of like special circumstances to obtain citizenship so so it's it's not just like so it doesn't work that you just obtain citizenship you first have to become a permanent resident and then you wait a a certain amount of time i'm not sure how long it is i think it's three years minimum of permanent residency and then you can test into citizenship so you know that test that people have to take sure um so being a permanent resident you'd have all the same privileges as as a citizen you just wouldn't be categorized as a citizen Mm. Um, so that's what people want, but, um, there's two major ways of going about it. Um, not taking into account like the special circumstances, like getting jumped. That would be a special circumstance where you could apply for citizen for permanent residence. What do you mean by that getting jumped? So I like, there's, I don't know, on the, on the U S government like website, there's like, it lists all the ways that you can obtain permanent residency. And if, uh, you are undocumented and you're just out in the street and you just happen to get jumped, um, there's a special application that you can fill out and turn into the government with a special fee 
that you can like obtain permanent That's residency bizarre. through there. Yeah. Like getting jumped as in like getting robbed and Yeah, and like beat beaten up. up. Wow. Or like another one that I've heard of is um if your spouse uh decides to like harm you, like like domestic abuse. Yeah, domestic abuse. Um, thank you. Um that would be another special circumstance where you could apply. Uh, my mom actually has a friend that did that. So this is all on the website, just these obscure ways to yeah. obtain a citizenship? Yeah, but the two major ways are either marriage, marrying another mm-hmm. U.S. citizen, or uh, employer vouching for you. So a, a, a government mm. employer vouching for your case. It so has saying, to be a government, government employer? Um, yeah, I think, I think it has to be a, some That's sort of government institution. It can't just be like any, uh, any type of employee. Right. Year, I'm sorry. Right. So that's through high school. Yeah. So um, that was I heard about that like sophomore year, I think. And that was great because I, I always wanted a license, dude. And the, it really hit me. So before this even came out, it hit me because all of my friends like Nick and Sam, yeah. all of them, they started uh, they started uh, enrolling in driver's education. Mm. And like they would always talk about it and I'd be there and I'd listen like what it's about. And they'd be like, yeah, we're learning to drive together. Like, they'd be in the same car. And, like, I thought that was so cool. I was like, damn, I want to do that. And that wasn't something that you had the ability to do? Yeah, I I couldn't do that. You you can now, of course. Yeah. Yeah, now I can. But, I mean, there's no – I didn't have to take driver's ed to get my license. Mm -hmm. Um, But after I heard that, I was like, man, I I went to the guidance counselor, and I was like, I'd like to apply for uh, driver's education, like, through the school. And they were like, no, I'm sorry, you can't. You don't have a social security number. And I was like, damn. Mm. That really got me down, man. I was like, yeah. shit. But thankfully, not many months later, a few months later, uh, DACA came out. And like, I remember my mom telling me about it. Like, hey, look, there's this like special permit that like Barack Obama has just issued. It's an executive order that allows you to like get work authorization so you can work under your name and get a driver's license. And I'm like, driver's license? Hell yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'm about it. <laughs> that's amazing. And, and so that was for you and your brother, right? Uh, so that's the unfortunate part. You remember how I told you my, my brother was seven years older than me? Oh, so when he my didn't brother, qualify? No, when my brother, so he did. But listen to this. Um, th- yeah, there's certain criteria for this permit. Um, but what happened is that, so he was 14 when we first got here. Okay. I was seven. He was 14. Mm-hmm. So he started c- high school here. Mm. He started his freshman year here. And my brother's also really social. He had, he had a, a decent group of friends, but ultimately what he eventually told me was that he just, he didn't feel welcomed in this country. He thought that we were, we were we were just like invading or like like he just he didn't feel comfortable here he didn't Mm -hmm. like it he wanted to go back he loved it there because uh i have two cousins who he's really close with um and um he missed them a lot and he had created a good relationship with them so he didn't like it here at all so what he did was uh within the four years so we got here in 2005 i think and then by 2008 he graduated and then two weeks after high school graduation, he decided to drive back to Mexico. Really? Pack up all his things. 18 years w- old. Was that, like, through communication with your mom? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's not like he just, like, left. Oh, okay. He's like, Mom, okay. like, let's yeah. do this. I want to go back. I want to go to college over there. Like, I, I came up with my aunt, and, like, he figured it all out. And my parents were like, I mean, we can't force you to stay here. Right. Um, so do you guys still communicate? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I talk to my brother all the time. Um, That's awesome. He graduated from college over there, uh, University of Mexico. He graduated in uh, foreign affairs. 
and now he's a he's a high altitude mountain policeman, <laughs> basically like a mountain ranger, dude. So he's always patrolling a mountain. That's an obscure job, dude. He <laughs> loves it, dude. Like he, I, I can show you some pictures. He has some beautiful scenery pictures. Yeah. Of the mountain there. That's awesome. It's cool that you guys are still able to, you know, foster your relationship and and keep it keep it going. Yeah, yeah. Um. So, um. That's another thing that he uh he eventually got to come back through like a visa. But it wasn't, like, until, like, four years afterwards. So he was, like, 22. He was, he was my age now when uh, he first came back. Oh, so is he is he back here now? No, no, no. He okay, so he's still in Mexico. Yeah, he has a family now. He's uh, Wow. He's got a kid, Damien. He's my nephew. He's, he's about, That's awesome. He's about to turn four. He's cute, dude. He's so smart. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, uh, so I, I, I applied to that, and after $500 and uh, hiring a lawyer to, like, help me with the application and everything for the first time, I submitted it. And then a few months later, I got it. And I was like, hell yeah. And then I got... Have you met Chase? Chase Roberts? Do not believe so, no. Uh, I think he was there uh, when we were with Nick. I don't know. But um, he was a good buddy of mine. And he he had moved from West Virginia to Crawford Bowen. We, we started becoming really good friends. And in West Virginia, you can get your license at 15. Wow. So he was driving like way before yeah. anybody else in our grade. Mm-hmm. And I would always get rides with him. He had this like nice truck and everything. And... Uh, uh, to get my license every day after school, after I got my permit, every day I'd be like, hey, take me to the DMV. I want to take this test. And he's like, all right. And I did that for like four or five days because I just dis- I, I, I refused to look at the pamphlet and study the signs and the rules and everything. I was like, I'm just going to take the test. I know how to drive. Like, yeah. Because I had been, I, <laughs> I had been like driving without a license because like my parents had an extra car mm-hmm. and they were always at work and i was like oh, i know how to use this i know how to use this car <laughs> so you kept like trying and trying and failing and failing yeah and then, then until like the fifth day it wasn't that i actually like i got it um uh so i got my license and everything and then and then the next thing very similar to that was um uh college application so i never even th- like this whole time dude i never seriously like thought of anything I didn't, I didn't critically think about anything. In, like, in terms of, like, long-term? Yeah, in terms of, like, my life. Like, Got what do it. I want to do with this? I, I was just kind of going with the flow, you right. know? And, um, Wait, which is almost like what most people do at that age, you yeah. know? It, there's, there's definitely a certain point in all of our lives where we start thinking, like, all right, we're here for a lot more years. Let's try and figure this shit out. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So I, I always enjoyed school. I always did really well in school because, I mean, I didn't mind it. And uh, eventually people started applying to college. And I was like, well, yeah, I guess I got to do that, too. Mm-hmm. I guess it's, like, just a thing. And so I applied to Ball State and IU, and I got into both. Mm. And I was like, all right, this is great. My permit allows me to do this. Um, now I just got to figure out how to pay for it. And I wanted to go to IU. I, I don't even remember why I wanted to go to IU so bad. I think it's just because it was Indiana University. Right, it was super close to Crawfordville. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I, just, I was just... I can't remember. I mean, having so having IU in state with the college that it is, the institution that it is, it, it's it's really hard to make the decision not to come here. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I, I got in and everything, and I started like researching more about like actually like coming here because my parents couldn't help me at all, like because they they don't know how this works. They've mm-hmm. never been here. They've never gone to college here. They they don't really know much about like the whole system here, and so I started like doing a bunch of contacting and with the help of my guidance counselor. Um, I was like able to find out more information, and IU, IU wanted me to pay out of state tuition. Even though you lived in Crawfordville. Even though I've lived in the United States in Indiana. Since what, I was what was seven. what was their 
reason for making that claim? Um, I think they just said that I'm not a resident. That's bizarre. Well, maybe, I mean, I can't even think of I don't know. a I reason. Was, like, I, I, I felt the same way you do. I was like, this is kind of bullshit. Yeah, you know? like, right. I've lived here for like a very long time. Um, so I remember I had to like call like three different people, like the office of the provost, like the yeah. student central and everything. And eventually this lady was like, all right, all right, listen, just fill out this form. It was a one-sided piece of paper that they mailed me. And it just asked me to list every address that I've ever lived in, in Indiana. Mm-hmm. And like the date and everything. I did that. I submitted it. Two weeks later, I get the greatest email of my life. It says, congratulations. You've been admitted to pay in-state tuition at Indiana Oh, University. that is amazing. And that goes from 20000 a year to 10000 yeah. a year, dude, in half right, right there. Right, Just from the from the submitting of a one-sided piece of paper. <laughs> I mean, dude, that's an amazing email to receive. Yeah, sure. dude, I was so stoked. I was like, all right, now I can do it. Because my parents didn't earn much money. I mean, like, they worked at fat factories. And right. They were, like, close to minimum wage. But, um... After that, I was like, all right, I'm doing this. And I remember my dad, because it wasn't that long ago. It was like four or five years ago. My dad didn't believe in me. He's like, you should look at other options. Because like, he, th- he thought I was going to be like very unlikely that I was actually going to be able to like do this whole thing. And like succeed at IU. Yeah. Right, which clearly you've yeah. proven wrong already. And I, yeah, and I, I remember meeting with a Marine officer. And like I was like, and he was like, yeah, we'll pay for your, uh, your college and everything um, after you do like four years of service. And I was like, okay. And I had, I had filled everything out. I was ready to go to, like, boot camp mm-hmm. um, just in case it failed through. But I believed in myself. And yeah. I was like, no, I'm going to do it. And all my friends, all my friends were like, nah, man, it's not going to work. Like, my, my my Hispanic friends. Oh, they were also doubting the fact that you could come to college and Yeah, succeed. dude, everybody doubted it. And then, uh, so senior year, senior year happened, and I was uh, I was – one of 18 students out of our whole region, so out of like five high schools that were elected to be part of this technical program called Health Careers. So any student that was maybe interested in pursuing a career in the health field could take this program. And what it involved is it was a year-long program, and the first semester was all book work. It was all tests and like learning like um, just medical terms and like CPR. We got CPR certified and everything like that. Uh, but the second semester, the second semester of that class was all clinicals. So we never even, we hardly ever even went to the classroom and met. What we did was three hours a day, five days a week, we would shadow different personnel at our local hospital. And I was so lucky because the local hospital was literally like a five minute drive from my house. So I would wake up every morning at like 7 Mm a.m. And I would just go there from like, from like seven to 10, I think. And then after that, I had like an hour for lunch and then I would go to high school and finish out my classes. And that's where I fell in love with neuroscience. So what happened was um, I went to like the emergency room, the ICU, uh, like the wound center, all these different like units in the hospital. And then I finally got to this unit called Generations. And I didn't even know what it was. Like we just got a list and everything. And um, it just said, go to this, report to this uh, nurse. You'll be following her. She works at this unit, Generations. And so I go with her, and I, I remember her name was Mary. And I'm just like, I'm like, oh, what do you do here? And, and she's like, oh, we take care of, like, uh, severely uh, demented, uh, like, elderly people. Almost like a almost like a, a, a retirement home, but it was, like, more intense than that. It was, like, people that were completely lost with reality. Were they doing a lot of, um, 
like inspection of the brain or what no, they, they, they were, were just, just hosting them yeah okay gotcha. they were just taking care of them um so they had alzheimer's and dementia patients there and at this point at this point in my life i had never even heard of these mental disorders mm-hmm. neurodegenerative disorders uh so i was like okay and she i remember she was kind of ruthless dude this this nurse she was ruthless because uh i asked her uh, at one point i was like so what's wrong with these and they were like oh they just have like memory problems and they just fail to remember a lot and she's like here i'll show you and so she we went into the room um i was like i think i was like serving like breakfast to them mm-hmm. so i would give them the tray and she demonstrated to me how out of touch with reality these patients were and i remember that like almost traumatized me because it was so crazy she was like she was like hey joseph and there's this like 80 year old guy in like the bed uh hey and he was like super friendly and everything and she'd be like oh what year do you think it is um and it being like 2015 he'd be like oh it's 2009 right wow with the window wide open and it being summertime she would ask oh what season do you think it is oh it's fall right being like like the middle of like summer just the farthest away from reality yeah dude and i was like whoa what the hell like how can you be that lost Mm -hmm. and so at first i was like oh this must be just the sickness you know they must just gotten sick like like, and you say that uh with the mindset that being sick you have the ability to recover and you think it's like something temporary exactly Mm -hmm. and so i go home and i just on my computer i'm like okay uh dementia and alzheimer's what do we know what's wrong with these people and i find nothing and i remember at that moment it it clicked for me dude because i was like we don't know a damn thing about this yeah like we humans don't know what the hell's going on here and i i like to use the analogy because this is truly how i felt um at that moment i was like you know it's like a it's like being in a forest at midnight with no flashlight and we somehow have to get to the middle of this forest and the middle of the forest is an answer an answer maybe a treatment maybe a way to help these people um but we're we're out here right now and what we need to do is we need to get to the middle of this dark forest Mm -hmm. and we do that through information through learning through research and i was like i at that moment i was like i want to set myself out to be a person that sheds some light on the path towards understanding so so you made it in that moment you made it your uh your goal and some your your highest achievement or, or something that you wanted to accomplish was to become a part of finding this answer exactly and that's where i was like okay it's neuroscience and and what year in college did you decide that's what you wanted to do i, I was in high school so you, oh, okay so finishing out your uh senior year in high school is when you decided yeah. that's what you wanted to do yeah you came to iu and they had and it. that's the track that you hit right away yeah from the top exactly. and now we, we spoke uh, a couple weeks ago about exactly like what you've been researching for the past yeah. three and a half years or whatever mm-hmm. um maybe shed some light on that but I, I i do know it's it's hugely associated with the brain and, and we talked about um you know what elliot has gone through i'm not totally sure if you've listened to that podcast but you know we talked about how the connection between his brain and his legs was lost and you know how we we as humans are still unclear about all of that yeah right so there's so much we don't know man 
Yeah. So, so through your research, what have you, you know, what have you, what have you personally figured out and what, yeah, just like, what are you, you know, still unsure about? What do you know for certain? So I've been involved in the Newman Memory Lab in the psychology department here at IU uh, since my sophomore year, towards the end of my sophomore year. And uh, as the name entails, we study memory. And we do that with rodents. We use rodents as models for the human brain. Because that's ultimately what we're interested in, obviously. Um, And so one of the major structures of the brain that we tend to focus on is the hippocampus. That this is a structure that throughout the years of research has been highly attributed to contributing to the successful execution of memory. So we do a lot of uh, electrophysiological recordings using uh, electrodes that we implant into the rat brain. And we, we, we record the electrical activity from the brain because, as you may know, the brain communicates through electrical pulses. Um, and so... At first, I started like training the mice in a, in a memory-dependent task, a hippocampal-dependent task, where they have to use their hippocampus in order to remember a certain thing. So what task. kind of task were you having these rodents do? Uh, it was called the T-maze. At that time, the lab worked with both mice and rats. So at first, I started working with mice. And it was basically a T, a maze in the, fa- in the, the shape, shape of a T. And at the end of both arms they would be baited with sugar pelts. Um, and then there would be a, a gate right here that I had access to open or close. Mm-hmm. So at first, I would position the mouse on the stem of the T, and then I would open, giving the mouse access to only one of the arms. They would go, they would eat their sugar pelt, they'd be super happy, and then I'd bring them back. And then I'd make them wait 10 seconds. Oh, so I, after I bring them back, I'd close this up, I'd make them wait 10 seconds, and then I would allow I would completely open up, allowing access to both stems. Mm. And what the mouse has to remember, that it visited the left arm, let's say. So now it has to visit the right arm, because the left arm doesn't have a sugar pelt anymore, because it mm. already ate it. And so a correct trial would be um, the rat on the during the test phase. This would be called the test phase. Um, the rat would go ahead and go to the right arm and get that sugar pelt because it hasn't visited that one. So that would be deemed a successful trial. Right, and we would do uh, 10 trials in one um, in one uh, training session. Sure, and what did the results show? So this was the first project, and I was doing this for a grad student who was working on a project called um, uh, the... Um, the... So this... This phenomenon is called, um, oh my gosh, I'm spacing it. It's called, you know what? I'm going to look it up. <laughs> okay. Because I made a poster about it and I presented it. Um, okay, so while you're looking it up, mm-hmm. let me ask you a question here. So in this diagram that you've drawn here, were you replacing these sugar pellets every single time they were eaten? Yeah. Okay, and they still went to the opposite side. Right. Every single time? Oh, no, 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 no. So that, that's the whole, that, that was my job is to train them to, for them to actually do it. But like mice are really dumb and um, it would be very rare that they would get all 10 trials correct. Mm. It all depends on how you train them. Um, do you train them at the same time every day? You just have to be very careful with uh, basically everything about it. Right. But So here's something interesting that I think about that I've thought about about this specific 
um, experiment. Mm -hmm. So if you put the sugar pellet in this far side, right? Yeah. Let, let's just say you put the sugar pellet on the left side. You open the gate, and the rodent goes to the left side to get the sugar pellet. Yeah. You replace the sugar pellet after mm -hmm. you sent them back to the, to the base of the tea. Uh -huh. Once you open that gate up again, if they go left and the sugar pellet, the sugar uh, pellet is there again for them, why would they ever stop going to the left? Right. If they're constantly being rewarded for going to the left and obtaining that sugar pellet. What so in I their mind would say, I ate it, but it's being replaced, so I'm going to go to the right this time. I think I misspoke. I do not replenish... Uh, the pelt that it first ate until okay. after the test phase. So if it would go left again, it would notice that there's not a sugar pelt. I think I missed. Okay. Right yeah. Okay. And then would you allow it the opportunity to go to the other side? No. Oh, it would. Okay. So it only got one choice. Yeah. And once that choice was made left or right, then it was done. Yeah. Okay. So it's called the retrieval practice effect. And it has, sh it has been shown in mice or not mice rats here. I you, um, uh, Crystal, the, John Crystal is the professor who does that research. And that was big. Like, that was a huge milestone in research that the, the rats could it could exhibit this retrieval practice effect, which is what this whole thing is mm -hmm. called. And so what we were trying to do is show it in mice, too. But we were ultimately unsuccessful. Um, Why was that? What led to the unsuccessful experiment? Uh, the mice were just too too hesitant to learn. We never actually got to the criteria of like at least eighty percent on every session. Is it possible to obtain creatures that are smarter than those mice that you guys had? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. But that's just not something that you guys. Yeah, we did. just we just don't do that. Um. So eventually we abandoned ship because this was all in hopes of uh, installing basically a microscope on the skull of the mouse mm -hmm. and the microscope would give us access to watch this the neurons fire in real time as it's performing this maze mm. so that we could somehow learn about like how do this how do the cells communicate is there like a specific pattern of firing as it's doing every component of this task gotcha are they like organized or what sure but we were never able to like actually obtain the images and everything so we abandoned ship and then eventually Throughout this whole time I was doing this, I also started involving myself in other tasks at the lab. Uh, one is called histology, which is I've, I've, I've fallen in love with. And histology is basically like, like, it, like, like the word entails, it's the study of the history. So um, what it has us do, so these, these mice were injected with a special type of virus. And this virus is called G-Camp. And what it would do is it would fluoresce whenever calcium would be deposited into the cell. So um, I don't know how much you know about uh, neuroscience, uh, but a cell inside a neuron is negatively charged at around negative uh, 65 mega or millivolts. Sorry. And outside the cell is positively charged. And when positive ions enter the cell, that's called depolarization. Uh, positive ions being like sodium or calcium or potassium. These can all be positively charged. And when they enter the cell, it's called a depolarization. And it's called, an, uh, if it reaches a certain threshold, it's called an action potential. And that is how neurons communicate with one another. So that's that's that, what you just described, is how our brain is constantly working. Yes. To 
even do a simple task as fire a muscle. Yeah, I mean, this is only one of the aspects of the brain. I mean, the brain is complete. Like, this, that's one of the things I've learned is that the brain is as immensely complicated as the entire cosmos itself. Well, I kid you not, dude. It is so intricately designed, man. Right, which is just impossible to even think about on a scale, right? Because, yeah. I mean, day-to-day, -day the, the tasks that we involve ourselves with and associate with just are nowhere near as complex as the cosmos or the brain right dude it's so densely packed but basically what we we're trying to do is we would we would inject uh, a virus into these cells g camp that whenever one of these positive ions entered it the cell would fluoresce and it would light up mm. and then we could see that with the miniscope that would be attached to the mouse's head gotcha and this had been done before it's not like we were the first one mm -hmm. to do it we were just trying to replicate what somebody else had done so that we could use the data for our own um, experiments. Yeah. Um, we never, we were never able to do that. And then, um, as I was telling you, I would do histology. So I would be the one to slice the brain of these mice. So I would extract the brain after sacrificing the animal. I would extract the brain, freeze it, and then slice it with this very, very fine slicer called a microtome. And uh, I would put this, the slices on a slide and then I would be able to image them under a microscope. And with the microscope, you could actually shoot a specific wavelength of light onto these slices, and you could actually see that virus. And so we would, we would actually be able to verify if we actually got the virus into the hippocampus, which is what we wanted to. And so histology is a way of verifying that you actually are heading in the right direction. Mm. You're actually doing what you intend to do. Um, so it, this it, wait, so just to clarify, this uh, what's it called again? The uh, so this is this is called uh, mounting the sl the brain slices onto a glass slide. Right. So doing the process with the slices is just to um, confirm that the virus either did or did not reach the location in which you were trying to exactly enter it in. Exactly. And um, so these these slices I cut at forty microns, which is um, so the average hair. The average width of a hair is around 30 micrometers, and these were 40 micrometers. They're so a little bit thicker than, than the average hair. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I just, I fell in love with the process of doing this because you have to be so careful in every step. And it's very, uh, uh, what's the word? Cathartic. Mm -hmm. It's very cathartic. Yeah, it's just, I mean, a delicate process. It's funny, yeah. we were talking about our OCD, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that must've been something that helped you in this process for sure. Yeah. And then, um, basically what happened was, uh, I fell in love with this and then I got to around my, to my senior year in college, which is where we're at now. And before, during the summer I would, so I would spend, I spent every summer of my college career here in town besides my, the summer after my freshman year. Cause that's when I went back home. I, I worked for a month and then I got to go back to Mexico for the first time in 12 years and visit my family. Mm -hmm. But every summer besides that, I've, I've stayed around and I've been, I've been actually paid to continue my research at the lab, which was a really good way of like funding my education. Totally great opportunity as well. Yeah. Um, to, yeah, just gain repertoire and everything. Um, but, uh, the summer after my junior year, I was like, I want to do an honors thesis. I want to graduate uh, with my degree in uh, neuroscience, but an honors degree as well. And to do that, you need to write up a thesis. And to write up a thesis, you need to make uh, you need to make what's called a um, uh, empirical 
you need to provide empirical data. So data that has not really been shown before. You need to somehow contribute to the scientific field by adding something new. And what uh, my PI, my principal investigator, the head of my lab, what he decided, uh, what he recommended for me is uh, to do exactly what I've been doing. These viral injections and the histology, but I would do it in rats and I would inject into a specific, a very, very specific area of the rat brain. And that area is the same area where we are performing electrophysiological recordings on other rats. And so what he wanted to do, and uh, the thing that he found value in, was that if we were to somehow uh, inject a, a, a virus here, but this virus would be different than this one in that it would have a different function. This virus would just be a tracer. So it would infect the cells that it would be injected into, and it would, even it would, it would either travel in uh, the backwards direction or the forward direction, relevant to uh, the flow of action potentials. And what it, what it would allow you to do is label the circuitry of the brain, which is really important. I mean, if you think about it in terms of a car, if you want to learn how a car works, you need to know what part is connected to what, mm -hmm. right? Without knowing that, it's hard to figure out the function of a part. So this process that you just explained simply allows you to connect the nodes, if you will? Uh, yeah, you would, you would basically label the neurons that are connected to one another. Okay, and it, does it give you a visual as to how these, um, like, does it give you a visual to see the activity that's going on? No. So it would just label them, and then that's it. Okay, it's simply a labeling process. Yeah, and you'd have to you'd have to sacrifice the animal in order gotcha. to even see it. Right. So um, it would be much different than this process. But um, he's like, yeah, you could do this, and it would be a contribution to his paper. He's a mm. he's a doctor student at the lab, and I'm like, dude yeah, that sounds great. Like, I, I, I'd totally be about it. I could spend the last year, the senior year, doing that. And that's exactly what I've been doing. And now it's uh, February 12th or 13th today. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I get to defend um, in April. I get to defend my thesis in front of uh, three experts. So you stand in front of a board and you basically... Um... Lay it all out. What did I do for my thesis project? What'd you do? How'd you do it? Why is what? Why is the information that you're giving them valid? Exactly. And why is it valuable to the scientific field? And you're gonna succeed. Yeah. <laughs> um, actually, I just uh, I just received some really good news regarding this. So, uh, my PI was at a conference in Utah not too long ago, about a month ago, and while at that conference, it was a neuroscience conference, and while there, he met this guy named Mike Biankowski or Doctor Biankowski. And they got to talking about each other's work, you know. And uh, Dr. Biankowski started saying, yeah, I work at uh, the University of Southern California. My lab is called the Neuroimaging Laboratory. And what we do is what we're trying to do is uh, uh, label every circuit in the rat or the mouse brain, like every single circuit. What I did here for my thesis was only one of those circuits. Right. They're trying to label every single one. And then uh, Aaron, my PI, he got around to say, whoa, that's really interesting that you say that because I have a senior student in my lab who has been doing exactly that on a specific circuit that we're interested in. And um, apparently he got to mention like my enthusiasm about it and like my, my willingness to learn and to like progress and everything. And Dr. Bankowski out of just luck was like, oh, really? Well, if he's as enthusiastic as you say, you should have him email me. 
And so I emailed him. He's a postdoc at this lab. So this lab in uh, uh, the University of Southern California, there's the PI, the head of the lab. And then how it works is that they have two postdoctorates. So they're working on um, their, their postdoc research. So they're already doctors. So that's uh, those two postdocs report to the PI, and the PI is the head of it all. And then under the postdoc are um, what are called uh, uh, lab technicians, which is just uh, full-time uh, employees doing doing the research for the lab and being involved in it and everything. And uh, I, I got to talking to uh, Dr. Biankowski um, on Skype and everything, and he offered me a job. Wow. And then um, I got to, and but he doesn't have the final say. He's like, yeah, I'd love to have you around. It sounds like I, I got to talking to him about like, uh, like my thesis work and everything. And he's like, yeah, it sounds like sounds like a great time. Like you should come over here and like develop your skills more. And I'd be like, yeah, I was, I'm, I'd be more than happy to. Like that sounds really great. And uh, he's like, yeah, but I don't have the final say. I'd have to report it to Dr. Hongwei Dong is his name, mm. uh, who has the final say. But still, I mean, that's a great lead. And uh, just yesterday. At 4.04 p.m., I received an email from Dr. Hongwei Dong saying... Confirming? After extensive conversation <laughs> with Dr. Biankowski and lab manager Sam Serrano, um, I would be delighted to have you join us at SRT. That whether, is amazing. Whether you, whether you decide to start right after graduation in May or in August, just know, and in bold, he put it, you have a position in my lab. Wow. Congrats, dude. Thank you, man. That's amazing. It must be a huge relief. Yeah, and, and I mean, it's exciting because I plan on, like, moving in with Bailey, and we would be in Los Angeles. And so, like, that's a huge art scene for Bailey since she's, right. she's a Bachelor of Fine Arts major. Wow, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. I'm really excited. But, I'm, I mean, I'm obviously not dead set on it. I'm still exploring. Totally, yeah. But it's good to know that I have, like, somewhere to land and somewhere to continue developing my skills. Right. And doing exactly what I've been doing. Right. Like, I mean, it's a huge passion of yours. Yeah, labeling the circuit of the brain. Because, dude, knowing how the brain is connected is a huge step in the right direction of learning the function and how it all works together. And right. How it's all connected together. And you don't do – you ask me, what have you learned in your time here? Um, I basically, it all boils down to we really don't know a damn thing about the brain. Mm -hmm. There's so much to learn. And neuroscience as a field, as a scientific field, is analogous to a newborn baby compared to other scientific fields like astronomy or, um, I don't know, like uh, botany or uh, biology. Like the study of the brain and the nervous system has been held back because we have not had the tools until recently in human evolution to actually go about analyzing yeah, how the structure studying works. It. Like these yeah. very precise needles and these special microscopes and right. special cutting devices and all of that. Totally. They haven't been around. I mean, they've only been around for like less than a hundred years. Mm -hmm. And it's really cool that you're, you know, starting to get even more involved in that field and, you know, more, uh, intense uh technologically advanced equipment is going to come out and you're going to be able to further analyze how the brain works and exactly figure out how all these connections are actually made and hopefully make a contribution towards the path of understanding man right yeah i mean that's amazing yeah i'm really really passionate and i'm really excited for the future that's really cool so this remembering remembering thing that you were talking about before how does that work oh so um so we don't really know so 
it's always been a very intriguing question to humans as to like how is it that we obtain information somehow encode it and then later in time retrieve that information that's what we know as memory memory right. is composed of these three these three steps encoding or uh, like the input receiving yeah, receiving encoding and then later retrieval mm-hmm. and we don't really know we have no idea there's theories about how it all works but we don't know but what we do know is that when you're actually recalling an event um so have you ever let me let me start with this have you ever had an instance in your life where you thought you remembered something but then it happens to be wrong totally yeah i mean it happens all the time <laughs> the, the simplest example i can think of is like somebody and i feel like it happens so often somebody says something right and maybe one of the words that they meant to say they misspoke but in their mind, they had thought they said that word correctly. Exactly. So the person on the receiving end of that word interpreted it the exact way it was said, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And that's how that confusion was generated. But yeah, totally. I mean, that retrieval uh, process definitely happens so much. So all of these, all of these things, um, scientists say that they indicate that our experience, like we we don't live, we don't truly live in the moment. We're always slightly lagging behind because i mean it takes time for like the stimulus to reach our brain and for us to like actually interpret it and so when it comes to memory people have speculated that well when we're remembering something we're not actually going back in time and remembering that event all we're doing is we're remembering remembering that is a concept that is difficult to grasp yeah sure and it's hard to explain (laughs) i wish i could do a better job but no i mean it's it's hard to explain when it's something that like we've been talking about it's it's just hard to even know how the entire organ works dude i have to show you this so i'm in a class so right now i'm not even a full-time student i'm only taking my honors thesis seminar for six credit hours um I'm, i'm spending a lot of time in my lab but i'm not taking that for credit hours and i'm only in one last class it's an advanced neuroscience class because I have to fulfill my requirements for my major. But this class is called The Development and Maintenance of Brain Circuits. How fitting is that for what I do? <laughs> right. Um, so I, I'm taking it, and it's with Dr. Hui, Hui, Hui Chen Lu. She's the director of the Neuroscience Center here at Indiana University. She's really, really sweet. Um, but just yesterday, was it yesterday? Yeah, it was. Yesterday, Tuesday, uh, she assigned four or five, I'm sorry, five students out of the class of like 13 to present over this groundbreaking scientific publication. It's a paper. The paper took about three or four years to actually gather and analyze all the data. But this paper, basically what it, what it has is it's a great representation of how incredibly complex the human brain is. And this wasn't even done on the human brain. It was done on a, on a mouse. So think about how like how much smarter you are than a mouse. And then, uh, and then look at these figures. So I'm just going to show you the figures. So what they were trying to do is they were trying to get a, 3D, a three-dimensional representation of a tiny little section in the brain. Tiny, dude. Of this rodent? Of this, yeah, of this mouse. And the way they had to go about doing this is very similar to what I do. They first slice it up into many slices and then later using computers actually supercomputers they were able to stack those slices together and get a three-dimensional representation of that tiny spot 
this spot is 1500 micrometers which micrometers cube cubic micrometers which is so so tiny dude like so incredibly tiny like um just to give you a sense um in a meter there's 100 centimeters in one centimeter there's a thousand millimeters no 100 millimeters and then in one millimeter there is a thousand micrometers so this and then when you cube a micrometer it's even smaller wow so this that it's almost impossible to conceptualize that and to visually see how how tiny this physically is. small that area is and just know that what they did took them like years to do so this is that section of the brain mm-hmm. and this is a bigger section so this is actually 1.5 millimeters uh, uh mm. wide got it um and what they wanted to do is just get one of these tiny dots and get a three-dimensional representation of it um so here it is uh all these are all the slices that they took the slices were <laughs> the slices were uh 29 nanometers thick so remember how I told you that my slices were 40 microns thick? Yeah. And the width of a hair is 30 microns? Yeah. Well, there is 1,000 nanometers in a micrometer. And these are 29 nanometers thick. Again, impossible to conceptualize. Yeah, it's just <laughs> super, super thin. And what they did was they stacked them all together, and this is a movie showing you, like, going from the bottom up. And all of these different components are just different cellular processes that are going on. Like uh, so, it's just showing like mitochondria. Just for those listeners, like, it's like I mean, I'm, what I'm looking at is like it almost looks like the workings of a of a super intense. It looks like, like worms. ant, yeah, ant community underground. Like it's just a lot going on. Black and white dots moving everywhere. Yeah, I mean, if anybody wants to check it out, the paper is it was published on on the cell. Um, publication site and it's called a um it's called uh, a constr- a reconstruction a saturated reconstruction of a volume of neocortex um and i mean it's free to free free to access and it has like these videos on it that you can like actually get a, a good glimpse of how complicated the brain is and how much farther we have yet to go. Yeah, man. That's um, interesting, yeah. So let me get to the good parts. Cause, so these are the actual images, but then uh, through the use of supercomputers, they were able to get a animation of it. They were able to animate it all using computers. Animate the entire process? Yeah. So remember, it's a, it's a tiny little... What they call it is uh, two uh, columns. So the actual 3D representation was like wow. this. This is sick. Wait, so is this online? Yeah. Okay, so if people want to find this exact animation that we're looking at right now, how can they do that? So they'd have to first look for the the publication. So it was published under uh, the Cell Journal. And if this ever loads, I can tell you the exact title of it so that you can just Google it. Wow, that's intense. So do you have your own? Um, yeah. Here so, we go. Okay, there we go. Saturated reconstruction of a volume of neocortex. Okay, so y- it's just on YouTube? Uh, so you just Google it and okay. it would be like the, the videos would be, I, I feel like it'd be hard to find these videos on YouTube cause they're tiny little clips for sure. Yeah. But they would definitely be under the publication itself. And I'm sure that concept is somewhere out there. Yeah. Yeah. So let me get to the animations that I wanted to show you. So I think we got to the first one. So this is, uh, 
these are neurons and what they're zooming into so now they they got rid of other neurons and they're just looking at one specific neuron and you see that little gray spot that mm -hmm. we're about to look into that is a 3d representation that they did that okay. is where it was that's gotcha. where it's tiny and so this neuron the dendrite of this neuron is actually running through through it through it so that's important just to keep in mind yeah there's a 3d representation of it see how complicated it looks but then they go in even deeper into it so here's a color-coded version of what you previously saw so everything that's a different color that's just a different component of a cell um but it, it gets even crazier man so here's another picture of that so that's going from bottom up wow look how much things yeah so this is very very specific in terms of what is actually going on in the brain yeah but in terms of understanding the brain from just the perspective of what I could say a normal human being. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how could you easily explain this process? So you would explain it as a complicated, saturated, densely packed set of processes that are very, very specifically oriented to work together in unison seems to, legit yeah to, to execute a, to <laughs> execute a task to execute a task well, so very cool so these are all the components in that special area like i said it just gives you an idea of how dense everything is and this is just remember this is just 1500 cubic micrometers right. in the brain. So the whole brain is like this. Yeah, and this is your this is your exact area of research. Uh this is neuroscience. Uh what do you mean? Just in general. Like this is but this specifically is what you've been looking at. Yeah. Yeah. This is what was presented to me in class. And I just Jeez. found it so fascinating because it really gives you a sense of how much we have yet to learn, dude. Mhm. Mm there's there's work to be done. Totally. Yeah, and I'm I'm here to contribute. So again, on a on a on a super specific level of uh, explaining the brain uh, processes to your average person, um, one thing I've always wondered because mm -hmm. I've I've seen and heard so many sides of it. How much of our brain are we actually using day to day? That's a myth. The, the, the myth that you only use ten percent of your brain and like the the other ninety percent is just left dormant. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's a myth. So um, what's the truth? You're using all of it. All the all of it all the time. Yeah, um, the brain is not like a muscle. It's not like a use it or lose it. It does benefit it to use it, but it's not like it's gonna make it stronger. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's interesting though because it's in association with memory. It's almost like you either use it or you lose it. And one thing I do hear quite often is that the brain is, in fact, a muscle. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I've never heard that. I know the brain is not a muscle. <laughs> sure. Uh, but you're right. I mean, with when it comes to memory, like, if you study, you will retain it. Mm -hmm. you, will, you will be able to retrieve it. But if you don't, you'll just forget about it. Right. But I don't, I don't know that there's any actual scientific evidence to suggest that. The more you remember things, the better you are remembering things. I think it just depends. Right. So it's all about practice, you know? Sure. 
Um, I don't think I don't think if you decide to like I don't know memorize the dictionary, you will then be able to you'll then have like a photographic memory because you've you've just you've just strengthened your brain so much. I don't I don't think that's true. So you think there's no correlation between like working part of your brain to strengthen another part of your brain? No. That's really interesting. Yeah, I don't think so. Um, I just think that it's good to stay disciplined and keep up with like whatever you're dedicating your time to so that you like you stay fresh mm-hmm. in a sense. Um, but I don't think I don't think you'll be better at it. Gotcha. So, Very like, interesting. There's there's memory like there's memory tests like there's memory competitions like like who can remember the most like consecutive numbers and right yeah and some of these people like can remember like tens of thousands of digits, um, but I wouldn't say that that person has a better memory than you do. They just practice more. So it's all about repetition. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody can do it. That's interesting. It doesn't take. There's no special power. No superpower no. associated with that. No. No, there's no secret. There's no secret formula. It's just all about... All about practice. Yeah, it's all about practice. It's all about practice. And just because you practice <laughs> doesn't mean you're better than the other guy that doesn't practice. Mm-hmm. You just practice. And so you re- you remember that thing that you practiced more than somebody that wouldn't. Totally fair. After all of this fascinating information that I've learned through my time here, I almost believe that the brain is... I had mentioned it before. The brain is just as complicated as the cosmos. Mm-hmm. And I've heard somebody say, well, then maybe the brain is the universe's reflection on itself. So your conscious awareness of yourself is actually the entire universe reflecting on itself. That's a hot take. Because, dude, right it's, there. It's, there's so much going on. Man. Right. Just like the universe. Too much to conceptualize for sure. I don't know. Man, that's amazing. I've been enlightened, I can tell you that much. I think that's a that's a fantastic place to stop right there. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it, man. Thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, Danny, thank you, dude. Seriously, it's been a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Little Things Podcast. And if you liked it, please leave a review through the Apple Podcast app. If you'd like to know more about previous guests on the show, or you'd like to understand a little bit more about the Little Things Podcast itself, please visit thelittlethingspodcast.com. Until next time, TLT out.